Well, good morning and welcome to a Tuesday morning. It's great to have you here. Another nice day, too. Mild temperatures continue. Parts of the province woke up to a little bit more snow, which is not a bad thing. A little more welcome moisture, and we will see bits and pieces of that. And the moisture we get, the snow we get during these these milder temperatures tends to have more moisture in it, which is something that is welcome for our our farmers as well in the province. And these mild temperatures definitely set to continue for a while. We've got a great show planned today. I'm looking forward to some good discussions and lots of opportunity for you to weigh in and get involved in these discussions as well. Coming up in uh, just a little bit, we're going to be talking about the whole notion of social promotion. We've been talking education for quite a while. I think the last couple of weeks, it's probably been the predominant subject on the show. The idea of social promotion has kind of peeked in and out of our discussions. This is the whole theory of advancing children in school, regardless of whether they've learned the necessary material. Maybe they've been absent a lot, but basically it's the no one fails rule. Many are saying this adds to the classroom complexities. I've got a guest coming up who sees firsthand the challenges in our schools. We'll have a discussion and then we'll open up the phone for your Thoughts as well. Also, we are going to be talking harm reduction. So the province we know has backed away from harm reduction in lots of ways, no longer handing out safe inhalation kits, stopping providing educated education literature on the topic, um, even making some changes to needle exchanges in the province as well. This feels like a step backward. I've got a couple of guests who have lived experience with substance use disorder. They've become advocates for drug policy changes. They've got their own podcast, and we will be joining them this morning for a discussion on this. And then again, we'll open it up for your thoughts. Oh, and also, have you seen these viral pictures on social media of the cool ice fishing shack on Last Mountain Lake? This is the one. It's an airplane that's been converted to a multi-purpose, multi-person ice fishing shack. Pretty cool pictures. And we're going to talk with the owner of this plane slash ice fishing shack. Maybe you've got your own story of the ultimate uh, ice fishing structure that you've seen or used. We'll uh, we'll do that a little bit later on this morning as well. Time now, though, for the big talker. Let's get out of it, Michelle. Welcome. Let's begin. The Evan Bray Show. The big talker. Well, yesterday we didn't get a chance to check in with Lisa Schick, our senior reporter who is uh, on hand in Melfort during the inquest into the murders on James Smith Cremation and Weldon that happened on September the 4th, 2022. Today is day seven. We had a whole week of the inquest last week. Uh, yesterday it picked up for the second week, and it's set to go for two and a half to three weeks. So it's got all of this week and likely most of next set aside for the inquest. This inquest, too, remember, was called at the discretion of Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill. This isn't a mandatory inquest, but given the magnitude of what happened, the the trauma that was caused not only in the James Smith community, in the Weldon community, but but for the province, Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill used his discretionary ability to call an inquest to basically say, let's get a better understanding of what happened. It'll it'll give community members and family members the opportunity to ask some questions, have some some questions answered and ultimately help closure for for a province who are you know still many people reeling from 
what was one of the biggest tragedies our province has ever seen. Lisa Schick is live in Melfort this morning and joins us. Lisa, thanks so much for taking our call. Yeah, good morning. So we didn't chat yesterday, but Friday, I think, was an important day as well because this was the the first time that we had a bit of a potential glimpse inside the head of Miles Sanderson. Of course, he died shortly after arrest. That left us with a lot of unanswered questions. But Friday, we had a couple of people testify that tried to help give some meaning or at least understanding to why that rampage happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we had a criminal psychologist who testified talking about, you know, the, the kind of personality disorders that Miles Sanderson may have had. As you said, he wasn't able to talk to Miles. He kind of gathered a bunch of information and has made some hypotheses as to what he thinks. But he was talking about things like uh, antisocial personality disorder, intermittent explosive disorder. He was saying that uh, Miles showed a lot of traits of psychopathy. Um, in a lot of what he did. We also heard from uh, kind of a, a criminal behaviorist, I guess, if you want to call him that, from the RCMP, who talked about, you know, why Miles chose to attack the people that he did. He said these were grievance-based attacks. These were people that Miles had some kind of a problem with. It could have been anything from he thought that they were associated with the gang terror squad to, you know, he just didn't like them. So that's why he did that. And he said... You know, these are situations where Miles had a plan. It may not have been down on paper, but he had one. And he was thinking as he was doing this, because there were people that he came across that he didn't attack. He just kind of left them as they were. I read one of your uh, reports there after the the full day on Friday, and you talked also about um, the same witness testified that even people that potentially stood in his way possibly stop the rampage that he was on were people that fell victim to his assaults. Yeah, he was on that mission, and anybody that got in his way became the object of his anger, of his violence. There were people who who tried to stop him from getting to the people that he had a grievance with. They stood in front of him. They tried to pull him away. There was one uh, man who Miles had attacked his mom, got the keys to a vehicle, started stabbing her, he came in, and Miles turned to him and started attacking him too, even though, as far as RCMP could tell, there was no grievance there. Yesterday started week two. Do you have similar numbers of people there, Lisa, actually watching the inquest unfold? You know, I would say there aren't as many people. Certainly the first week, even though it was incredibly cold as it started, last week was when they were explaining the details of what happened, where he went, all the minutes that went by during that attack. This week, it's it's a little bit less involved. It's kind of getting into the minutia of things and not as many kind of global answers that people from the community were likely looking for. Senior reporter Lisa Schick is joining us this morning. So last week, we heard various RCMP officer testimonies. Yesterday, starting this second week of the inquest, other emergency responders were part of the inquest, correct? Yeah, we heard from um, a member of the you know, Saskatchewan Highway Patrol. He was talking about how highways and conservation officers, they both responded to help out the RCMP. More than 50 officers over six days were there. They were providing security at hospitals so that RCMP officers could do other things. They were helping out with clearing some of the scenes on the First Nation as well. We also heard from uh, paramedics how they were 
out there lightning quick. I think they said from the time that they got the first call about it, it was 17 seconds until the first ambulance was dispatched. And they talked about staging that kind of triage center at the band office, why they couldn't go out to houses. Only one ambulance was actually allowed to go to a house on the First Nation to pick people up. We also heard about how Saskatchewan Health Authority worked out their organization because there were people being sent to, I think it was four different hospitals in the area. So they tried to organize that. They tried to make sure that families could get the answers that they needed when they needed it. You know, I've had the opportunity to sit through inquests in the past, and and I've seen the benefit, the strength that comes when family and community members can apply for standing so that they can ask questions of the people that are bringing testimony. There's a few people that have taken that opportunity in this inquest as well. How has it been for them, and, and do you feel, Lisa, like they're getting the answers they're looking for? kind of a mixed bag. Um, Deborah Burns, she feels like she is getting some of the answers that she wanted. Her father was Earl Burns Sr. I know we talked last week about the situation with Earl Burns Sr. in the bus and her questions to the RCMP officers about why that bus wasn't checked sooner. But there are other people who are asking questions who are saying, you know, we're not getting the answers that we want. They keep putting us off. They keep telling us, we don't know this. Maybe another person will know it. And they're kind of losing faith in the process. What's on the agenda today? Today we're going to start hearing from corrections and parole, people who work kind of in that area. And this is going to be important because there are a lot of questions about why Miles Sanderson was allowed out in the community. He had been paroled from a fairly violent offense. He had stabbed people on the First Nation, but he was given parole. He was out in the community, and we'll find out, you know, why that is and why he was allowed to be unlawfully at large. What happened when he stopped reporting to his parole officer? That's expected today and tomorrow. Lisa, thanks so much for the check-in, and uh, we will touch base with you again tomorrow morning. Thank you. Lisa Schick, senior reporter for 980 CJME, keeping us up to date on the James Smith Cree Nation inquest, which is going on week two this week in Malford. By the way, you can follow Lisa on social media, too. She brings uh, regular updates on there. She does, at the end of the day, an update on our website, so you can check it out there. She's doing a great job of, of covering a very complex inquest. In fact, it's being touted as probably the largest inquest ever held in Canadian history, in Saskatchewan, but in Canada as well. It's uh, it's a big one for sure. You know, I've had this question a couple of times, and I, I wanted to follow up again on this. People are saying, okay, I'm not able to go to the hearing. How much of the information can I access after the fact? The reality is that inquest hearings like this are completely open to the public. So people can go at any time. You can sit in, you can listen to 100% of the evidence that's being presented. In some cases, there may be pictures or videos that are shown. However, at the conclusion of the inquest, none of that evidence will be shown. What you what you will be able to do is you'll go on the coroner's website at the conclusion of the inquest, and you'll be able to see, first of all, the recommendations. Because there's a jury in every inquest, and they'll come up with recommendations that are truly focused on preventing a tragedy like this from happening again. You'll see the recommendations. You'll see a letter written from the chief coroner to any of the affected parties. So as chief of police with the Regina Police Service, I would get a letter from Cliveway Hill, for example, as the chief coroner, saying we just held this inquest. There was a number of recommendations that came out. Recommendations 1, 4, 6, and 8 
pertain to the Regina Police Service. Please have a look and respond to me in writing as to whether you will be able to implement the recommendations or if you have any thoughts, questions, and concerns. I then would usually take a bit of time because often it takes time to implement the recommendation. If we're not able to implement it, but we have a comment on it, we would send that back. And then that response will be posted on the coroner's website. So if you go on the the Saskatchewan coroner's website now, you will see past inquests with the recommendations, the responses from different agencies, could be social services, could be a policing agency. So that is what you will see in this case as well from the inquest that's going on at James Smith Cree Nation. And uh, that inquest, again, is set to go for week two this week and likely most of next week in Malfort as well. You're listening to 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. Welcome back. We were just chatting about the inquest up in Malfort for the James Smith Cree Nation. I was talking about the fact that on the coroner's website, you can go and look at past inquests, what the recommendations were, and then see what the follow-up action has been. And so one of the inquests that was held uh, is the Jeffrey Morris inquest. This is the shooting death of Jeffrey Morris, uh, one of the Regina police officers in a situation where Jeffrey Morris was holding someone hostage, ended up uh, in an attempt to save a life, shot and ultimately uh, killed Jeffrey Morris in that. And so an inquest automatically in our province is held into that. During that inquest, there was all kinds of testimony about the the facts, no different than what's happening now. And at the end, the jury comes up with a list of recommendations. And some of the recommendations, I was chief at the time, some of the recommendations, of course, were geared directly to the Regina Police Service. And they talked about, you know, the possibility of having an Indigenous elder present when it's an Indigenous person in crisis. Uh, talked about the fact that maybe a psychologist needs to be called out with the crisis negotiator team. And you'll see the letter that I wrote back to Clive Wayhill, the chief coroner, responding to the recommendations. We were able to implement a process where Indigenous elders and resources are available. We were able to implement a case where psychologists would be called out. One of the recommendations, however, had to do with body-worn cameras and and having police have access to and wear body-worn cameras. That's not something that Evan Bray, chief of police, was able to snap his fingers and make happen. That's a decision that will be made in conjunction with the Board of Police Commissioners and is a a pretty significant budget ask. And so I still responded to it. I gave an understanding of what we were doing to step in that direction. But, you know, ultimately, at this point, the Regina Police Service is not wearing body-worn cameras. And so even though it was a recommendation, it's really just a response to that to give an idea of the work that's being done in that area. So again, all of that is available on the website. You can check it out. And once this inquest is done, that same sort of information will be available there as well. All right, coming up in a second, we're going to the topic of should we go back to failing students who don't meet academic grade level standards? I've got a guest joining me to talk about that, and then we'll get your opinions as well. Coming up just after 9 on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.